Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scorers NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined once again, or rather, should I say, I'm reunited with co-host Joe Wolfon. Aloha. You know, I thought you might go with that today. Fresh off his honeymoon. Had to be done. Island bouncing around Hawaii, and he hits us with the aloha. We missed you, man. I missed you too. I mean, not that much. Because I was in Hawaii and it was spectacular and it's a bit of a come down coming back to somewhat dreary Toronto in the doldrums of winter. But I did miss being in the studio and talking ball with you. Was going through a little bit of withdrawal as I was sunning myself on the beach thinking about what I could have been watching. (laughs) And so that's why I'm back here and and hoping that you'll fill me in on everything that I missed. Yeah, that's what we're going to do today. You know, you, um, you were MIA for a few weeks. You know, you dared put love before basketball. <laughs> um, you're going to need to catch up on what's been going on around the association because in typical NBA fashion, you miss a couple of weeks and it's like you've missed a year in any other sport. Yeah, it does feel like that. Like, I, I don't feel totally out of the loop. Obviously, I, I kept up with what was going on in the league. But as far as actually watching games, I think I watched just one game while I was actually gone, which was... I managed to catch Bucks Raptors while I was at a taco joint in nice. Kauai. Nice. Um, so, in Kauai, of all places. Yeah. I, and I thought, like, you know, on account of all those circumstances, it was, it was destined to be a Raptors victory, but it wasn't to be, so. It was not. Well, I, why don't we start there? Not with Bucks Raptors, uh, the game, but with the Bucks. Because I know that's one of the things you've gotten written down here, or, or one of the teams, I should say, you've got written down here as something you want to catch up on. So let's start with the Bucks. What questions do you have and or what things do you have to say about them? Like, this team's insanely good, right? And they, they basically have been all season, and I don't know if we've been really waiting for the other shoe to drop or we have just... Like, where does the doubt for this team end, right? I, I, I think I can say that I've been guilty of this too at times, where we talk about this NBA landscape as being pretty level and the field being somewhat wide open and the title chase being up for grabs. And any statistical measure, anything that we can look at on paper, and honestly, even just watching the Bucks play and what they've been able to do to teams, how they've completely lapped the field as far as defensive efficiency and how I think, you know, relative to the rest of the league, both in terms of their overall net rating and their defense, they profile as one of the three or four best regular season teams ever. Where, where do we stop questioning or doubting this team and just start treating them as the prohibitive favorites that, you know, every measure suggests they ought to be? Well, I think, I think the doubt should stop. Yeah, I think there's really not much more they can do to prove that they are historically great and historically dominant. Like, that's what they are. With a player in Giannis that is having as good a season as maybe, like, any non-Michael Jordan, non-LeBron. You know what I mean? Like, unless you want to, like, put them... Yeah. I think you can put this season up there with, like, the best seasons that LeBron has ever had. Well, then there you go. Then there you go. Like, we're talking about a historically dominant team with a player playing at a level that few, if any, have have reached before like yeah that's the type of team and the type of talent we're talking about and if that's the case then why the hell wouldn't they be the primitive championship favorites I will say this I think that they they should absolutely be the overwhelming eastern conference favorites I think 
you know, we'll get into it. I think there are a couple teams that can trouble them and have the goods to maybe beat them. But I think if you're just talking about favorites and, and betting and all that, they should be the overwhelming East favorites, like bar none, full stop. I still think that they'd, they'd be the favorites with home court in a series against either LA team. But I don't think they should be as overwhelming a favorite against either LA team as a 70-win team with this kind of win profile usually would. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think that's necessarily a knock on the box. I think that's more, at least for me, still believing in a ceiling that a LeBron, Anthony Davis-led team can get to in a playoff series where like the margins are so thin. You know, to still think about this Bucks team beating LeBron James with Anthony Davis at his side four times out of seven... Do I think the Bucs can do it? Absolutely. Do I think they should be overwhelming favorite to do it? I don't know. And then again, even going back to Kawhi, I know we've spoken about this like five times this season, and I know you've mentioned it's not like it was just Kawhi that shut him down in the playoffs last year. Having said that, Kawhi did have a lot to do with it, and I still think Kawhi in playoff mode can seriously disrupt Giannis Antetokounmpo and therefore disrupt the Bucs enough with enough weapons around him, you know, himself with Paul George and all the guys they've got. So I think the Bucks should be favorite, to answer your question. I think they should be overwhelming favorites in the East, but I don't think they're as overwhelming a favorite over the two LA teams. Right. And you're saying that's that's more a, a measure of how high those two LA teams can right. conceivably climb in a playoff setting as opposed to any doubts specifically that you have about Milwaukee. And I'll say this, like I think, and we even saw it, you know, we saw it last night against Miami. I think we even saw it in that game against the Raptors. Like there are ways I think to slow down their offense and there are teams in the league that are capable of doing it I don't necessarily think the Clippers are one of those teams but I do think the Clippers are one of the few teams that can actually crack their defense to a certain extent because you know between Kawhi Paul George Lou Williams like they got a lot of really solid pull-up jump shooters and that's what it takes to crack that defense and it's not just about hitting threes you know the threes that the Bucks kind of willingly concede right I think the formula for beating them this season has been like if you're going to knock down your threes then you're going to have a chance and if you aren't then you won't but the Clippers can also really take advantage I think of the mid-range space that the Bucks concede where you know Kawhi can get to that 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 mid-range pull-up PG can get to that shot, you know, Lou Williams, whether it's a mid-range pull-up or a floater, like they have a lot of guys who can take advantage of that in-between space. I think that's one of the limitations that we saw with the Raptors. This is something that I said, actually, you know, while watching that game, which is that a a lot of people have pointed to, you know, the loss of Kawhi's defense on Giannis as like the biggest thing that the Raptors are going to miss in a potential matchup, a potential rematch with the Bucs. And to me, by far, the bigger loss for them is Kawhi's pull-up shooting. And specifically in the mid-range, where they just don't have anybody who can remotely replicate what he gave them. And it makes the drop coverage that the Bucks play and their ability to protect the rim, unlike any team we've seen in you know close to a decade, I think it makes it really, really challenging. And this is like you kind of have to counterbalance those two things, right? You need a team that is capable of slowing down their offense, which I think a team like the Raptors is capable of doing. You know, Miami, to a certain extent, I think can do the same. Maybe the Lakers, um, given their size and their rim protection, I have questions about the Clippers. Even with Kawhi potentially slowing down Giannis at the point of attack, 
and having Paul George there as a helper, like I just think their lack of interior defense is really going to hurt them in that regard. And that's, that's why they didn't address at the trade deadline. That's also why I don't give Boston a chance against them. You know, I think Boston's yeah. creativity with Brad Stevens and mm-hmm. and they've been solid defensively. And like Daniel Tice has been awesome in the but yeah. you know, things, Tice has been great. He's like, been great. He's he had deserved, a great defensive season. Yeah. Like as their small anchor in a way, but. You know, you just mentioning what you mentioned about the Clippers and maybe lacking the size. Like the Celtics, even more so, lack that size. And you know, it's fine in a one-game setting, maybe in the regular season. But you get to May, right? And you get to beat a team four to seven times. I'm sorry, but a team, you know, with the size mismatch of the Celtics, can't do it. Right. And the Celtics are another team where you know, and I, I will talk about Tatum. I think in a little bit, but his emergence as a pull-up shooter maybe makes their offense a little bit more viable against that Bucks defense as well. But it's just like there are so uh, – it's really hard to come up with a team that can do it at both ends of the floor, right? And like Philly is a team that we've talked about as their personnel can maybe give the Bucks trouble at one end of the floor. Right. But at the offensive end, like I don't think Philly has a chance of cracking that Bucks yeah. defense. So. They can't shoot well enough yeah. to punish the Bucks for the way they play, right? Yeah. So so that's one thing. I just think like their defense is so so difficult to puncture. And I think, you know, the Clippers are one of the very few teams that I can see actually doing it, you know, four four times out of seven. I think two teams um, in the East can, unless you were going to get into that, or were you going to move on? No, to I wasn't. Point? I mean, you can you can uh, tell me who you think they are. I think the Raptors and the Heat can. Again, when we talk about can, I'm not saying, you know, I'd pick them to beat the Bucks. I mm-hmm. wouldn't pick anyone in the East to beat the Bucks. But if, if teams can and, and shape up to be built like they can, I think it's the Raptors and maybe the Heat specifically. And I don't want to put too much into the fact they're 2-0 and in the regular season against them, but I do think you saw elements of that in, in their win last night. Like, you talk about the ways to beat the Bucks, and you were just talking about it. Uh, defensively, you need size. You need versatility. You need to be able to both protect the rim and recover out to shooters and defend the three-point line. And I know some of that is luck when you talk about opponents' three-point percentages, but some of the some of it at some point in a large enough sample size, you know, has to be the way you defend the three-point line as well. And you're gonna be able to shoot to punish the Bucs, right? For the way that they play and giving up the threes they give up. I think the Raptors defensively, in terms of versatility, I think the Raptors may be more so than the Heat. Mm-hmm. But with Bam at the five spot, and you know, we know that there's a such thing as playoff Jimmy. You know, I do think the Heat defensively can do it too maybe not to the same extent the Raptors can shooting wise the Raptors are I believe number four in three-point percentage the Heat are number two and then if you look at opponents three-point percentage the Heat are number four and the Raptors are actually number one so you look at like the way those teams are built and their personnel and then with the Heat they have a guy in Jimmy Butler who can punish you with the pull-up and the mid-range and get to those in-between spots and he did it against the Raptors in the playoffs last year so Mm -hmm. I think if you're looking for two teams that on both ends of the court, at least in the Eastern Conference, could derail what looks like otherwise a clear path to the finals for Milwaukee, it's those two teams. And the way things are shaping up right now, Miami stays in that 4-5 spot. If they can beat Philly, like that's that's Milwaukee's second round opponent. I think that would be a tough out for Milwaukee. I I think it would be a tough out, but I I would feel pretty confident in their ability to get through it. I just... As much as, yeah, like Bam is an excellent defender and kind of sticking him on Giannis and having him hang back, you know, daring Giannis to shoot and just having him there to meet him at the rim is a really nice luxury to have. And obviously Butler can wreak havoc on the perimeter. They still have a lot of minus defenders in their rotation. And I don't know, like their three-point shooting is obviously a big weapon against the Bucs, but I, I would feel like 
ultimately the Bucks would be able to solve their defense over the course of a series. Like, I, I think, you know, one thing we saw toward the tail end of that Bucks raptors series was the Raptors going zone and that flummoxing the Bucks. I think that's an interesting wrinkle to throw at that team because a team that is sort of predicated on drive and kick can often struggle against a zone. And that just sort of allows them to keep big bodies near the rim. And they do a really good job in that zone, despite the fact that they give up a lot of three-pointers when they're in that defense. Um, they do a good job of challenging those threes and essentially making them contested threes that they're giving up. So maybe that's a wrinkle that they could use, but I just don't know that I have faith in that working out over the course of a series. And I also don't know that I have faith in their offense holding up to the point that they could actually win. But I do think they can make it challenging. They've had such a weird season too because they've had some real letdown games against inferior competition. But like you look at how they've performed against the best teams in the league and it makes it hard to ignore them, right? 2-0 and against the Bucks, 2-0 and against the Raptors. I think their record against, you know, above 500 teams is second only to Milwaukee in the Eastern Conference. So they've performed really well against the teams that they're going to be facing in the playoffs. And you do wonder whether that is more an indication of the quality of the team or whether we should, you know, be alarmed by the letdown games that they've had against teams that are worse than them. Yeah. Uh, I still think that this is a team that will have something to say come the spring. And I think, you know, whether they might lose in the first round to Philly, you know, if Philly gets healthy and that's mm-hmm. the four or five. And I don't even think that would necessarily be that much of a disappointment for the, the Heat. But as I've said all season, I think if even if you beat them in the playoffs, I think they're taking something from you yeah. in that series. I just think they'll grind you to dust, you know. Right. And they and also aren't that far out of the sixth spot. Like they could potentially fall. Like it depends. I, I think I, I don't have faith in the Pacers catching them. I mean, I mean, I might have more faith in the Pacers catching them than the Sixers catching them at this point, given the Sixers. No, no that that right. I agree. But I, so I think if anyone falls to six, it would be Philly in that case. Like I don't yeah. think the Heat are going to fall to six. Yeah. Um, but okay, so to close off this Bucks thing, I think one of the big questions about them, and it, it was the same thing last year, is you know, do they have a good enough number two to win a title? And I think it's been overlooked how good Chris Middleton has been this season. He's played like a legitimate superstar, right? And I, and I feel like so often we get into these weird and kind of arbitrary semantic distinctions where like, oh, is Chris Middleton a star? Is Chris Middleton a superstar? And like, I don't entirely know what that means all of the time, but I think he has absolutely played like a superstar this season. He is having one of the best shooting seasons of any player in the league right now. I mean, he's going 50-40-90, and yeah. I think it's actually like 50-44-90. Um, and real, just and, real quick, to jump on that note, he's doing it while scoring just under 21 points per game, and I went back... so the, In like eight, 29 minutes Yeah, in less than 30 minutes per game. But even if you toss aside how insanely productive he's been in a short amount of time per game... Just looking at those shooting splits, only eight guys in history have joined the famed 50-40-90 club. Only four guys have done it while averaging at least 20 points per game. Larry Bird, mm-hmm. Dirk Nowitzki, Kevin Durant, and Steph Curry. Think Pretty about good company. That. Think about that. <laughs> and Chris Middleton's on pace to do it as the second best player on maybe a 70-win team. Yeah. That's a freaking superstar. And, he, you know, like, I, I feel like his defense has been overrated at times, but he's at worst, a solid defender, you know? And given the scheme they play, like, his defense, I'm not going to say, like, it doesn't have to be good, but they have such reliable rim protection behind him. 
it doesn't make it irrelevant, but it's like as long as he's kind of contesting threes, chasing guys off of the arc, putting forth, you know, solid rear view contests or just get in passing lanes and help at the rim as basically every Bucks player is expected to do. He does that exceptionally well. And like, that's the thing about the Bucks defense, right? Everybody has these sort of, aside from Giannis really, who's just roves and wreaks havoc all over the floor. Everybody has these kind of clearly defined roles and it simplifies things for all of them. And the fact that they're doing it now for a second year in a row, like they just look so comfortable and confident running that scheme. And with Middleton, it's like, I mean, shooting off of the catch, elite. Shooting off of the dribble, elite. Shooting out of pick and roll off of screens, elite. Shooting out of the post, elite. He is a three-level scorer and a three-level shooter who is doing it like in basically every way imaginable. And it has become so difficult to prevent him from getting to his spot and bothering his shot to the point that you, know, like, you actually feel like you have some measure of control over it. Like He just looks... Obviously, like I, I'm not putting him in Kawhi's category or comparing him to Kawhi, but like it's a little bit similar in the way that like there's only so much you can do, right? He's going to get to his spot. Most defenders that you put on him, he's going to be able to shoot over top of them. And it just seems like you can't really do much to affect his jumper. And he's he's been like you said, like he's been playing at a superstar level this season. So I think that question to me has been pretty definitively answered. Yeah, he's not like the rah-rah on billboards being featured in NBA commercials guy, and I think a lot of people think of superstars as that guy, but if you want to talk about production and on-court value, he's a superstar. Yeah. Two notes I've got on the Bucks before uh, we move on, and it's actually from last week's game against the Raptors. One of them was that, uh, you mentioned you watched that game, so we can talk a little bit about it, but the, the way that Giannis almost picked the Raptors apart in that game. And he's been a, you know, he's been a good playmaker for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. But he had eight assists in that game, and the way he was doing it, I thought, was a little different. And this is something he actually spoke about after the game, in that the way teams defend him, you can't just always attack from the top and drive it like down the middle and look to kick out. You need to catch the ball in different areas. You need to attack from different areas. And we saw that in that game against the Raptors. He was cutting on the baseline and catching it and then making plays off the catch, not for himself, but for others. Uh, he was getting it at the elbows. The Bucks were running their action, and he was making plays there. And it hurt the Raptors because you could see times when they were bringing, especially when it wasn't OG and Unobi on him, so it was someone that maybe they didn't trust as much to guard one-on-one, and they brought that quick double. And like the second a second Raptors defender started inching towards him, that ball was out of his hands. And I think that's a development that not enough people are talking about. Everyone talks about you know the slowly improving jumper and potentially three-point shot. And yeah, those are obviously Mm. very important for him to beat teams the way they're guarding him. But him being able to diversify his playmaking a little bit too and see the court better and move the ball quicker, those are also subtle developments in his game that will help him beat the way teams are defending him. Yeah, and I think having some in-between counters also is a big thing. And you've seen him be a lot more willing to go to that kind of mid-range. It's almost like a fadeaway that he shoots from like 10 or 12 feet out. And he's gotten pretty accurate with that shot. And I think, you know, that's something I mentioned last year after he kind of, I won't say fizzled out, but like he faded a little bit at the end of that raptors Buck series. And part of the reason I think for it was he kept getting stuck in the middle of the floor and he didn't have enough counters there. And if that can be a reliable shot for him in the playoffs, and I'm not quite ready to say that it's going to be because I think 
it often happens where you'll see a new wrinkle in somebody's game in the regular season, but they don't really trust it in the playoffs. Right. What happens and when he goes two for eight on that shot, right? Yeah. In game one of a loss or something. Yeah. Um, and the same thing with a three-pointer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, you don't really know whether it's going to be there for him or not. But but if that can be a reliable fallback for him when he gets into that mid-range area, um, then I think that's going to be pretty huge as well. So, yeah, I'm I'm definitely at the point where I'm thinking this is overwhelming i don't know i don't know exactly what that means but i think they're a strong title favorite and i think there are any number of reasons you could point to for why that's the case okay so then here's my second and final note from that game this was mike budenholzer before that game okay when uh, both coaches were asked about you know how much how much do they throw at the board and kind of see what sticks in this matchup and how much do they hold because they don't want to show too much for the playoffs. And Nick Nurse did his usual thing. Where he's like, ah, I'm going to try a few things tonight. They might blow up in my face. Like, I don't yeah. know, but we're going to try them. Here's what Mike Budenholzer said when asked the same question. We pretty much just focus on ourselves. We stay true to who we are. The degree to which we do something one night versus one team and something different another, by NBA standards, we're probably on the other end of the spectrum. We just do what we do, and hopefully it's good enough. Now, is it fair to read too much into a pregame comment from the reigning coach of the year of a team on pace for 70 wins in, in February at the time? No. Well, then you don't have to read into it. Like, we know that that's who Bud is. He didn't have to say it for but, us to know. Okay, but what, so what I was getting at is, does it concern you at all that Mike Budenholzer is still, the, like, last year's playoff, and I know you don't like the term flame out, for, but I, I call it a playoff flame out. Uh-huh. Does it concern you at all that Mike Budenholzer is still going with the, we're doing what we do, and if you can beat us, then good for you, but I'm not changing. And look, I get it to a certain extent. Uh-huh. You know who put it uh, really well is Jeff Siegel. He's a good follow for NBA fans. And he said, the fascinating thing with Bud and Nurse is that Nurse and the Raptors change it up constantly and dare you to keep up. Bud and the Bucks do the same thing every night and just dare you to beat them. Mm-hmm. And to their credit, they're on pace for 70 wins. Like... They can do that, but I don't know, man. If if there's one thing that still concerns me, it is the fact that maybe they see a wrinkle they haven't seen before, maybe, and and Budenholzer just refuses to adapt. Yeah. Does um, that concern you at all? I think concern might be strong, but I, I do think, you know, this has been the knock on Bud for basically his entire coaching career. He has these great regular seasons because his teams are built on these really strong organizing principles that they stick to. And over the course of a long regular season, like the habits and the scheme kind of win out. But the sample size shrinks in the playoffs. And suddenly you don't have the luxury of a long regular season where you can't just sort of shrug off a two game losing streak and say that like over time, our system and our principles are going to carry us through. You need to make adjustments on the fly because suddenly your back is up against the wall. So yeah, I think you could say that like that might be a little bit of a concern. I do think like the Bucks have just been like so overwhelmingly good that maybe you worry about it a little bit less. And I think from the standpoint of the Raptors say where Nick Nurse is throwing all kind of shit at the wall and seeing what sticks all season long, that has partially been born of necessity mm-hmm. and there is no necessity there for the Bucks because they're just so good that they can be true to who they are and they don't have to worry about 
getting all funky and trying different things because what they've been doing has been working so unbelievably well. Like, would I maybe prefer for them to have a coach that's more willing to adapt in a playoff setting? Probably. But I, I just feel like they're good enough at doing what they do. Like, they've they've created a system where it is going to be really, really difficult to beat them. And I guess if somebody can do it, you maybe tip your cap. But I don't know. I, I guess we'll just sort of have to wait and see. And I do think like they were closer to winning that series against the Raptors and closer to winning a title last year than a lot of people have given them credit for. So I don't think it's like it can't work with Bud at the helm. It can't work with the system that they're running now. They need to be able to change things up on the fly. And it's like if it had gone the other way, the, the narrative would be completely different. And I think when something like that happens, when one team is staying true to who they are, and it's successful where the other team is trying to make all these adjustments, changing their lineup or changing their scheme, mixing up their rotation. It's like, oh, that team's desperate. That team's panicking. Like they're where this other team is just calm, collected. We know who we are. We're doing our thing. And like they're lauded for staying true to their principles and not panicking. Whereas the other team is sort of held to account for at the first sign of trouble, switching things up. And I think it's important to just recognize how dramatically the narrative flipped and could have flipped the other way had those four games last May gone differently. Yeah, well, I guess the last thing I'll say on that note is I agree with everything you just said, and I think teams get lauded for staying true to themselves, and I think they continue to get lauded, but you got to win, right? And look, it's unfair, man. It's mm-hmm. unf- like one team wins out of 30, right? You can win... 70 freaking games. You can win 73 games and be up 3-1 in the finals and still not win a championship. And that doesn't mean you had a bad seat. In a lot of ways, it's cruel and it's unfair. Mm -hmm. But that's the high-stakes game they're playing. And when you're Mike Budenholzer or whoever the coach is at this level... I think you get, you have to be prepared for that backlash if it doesn't work and and your whole thing is staying true to who you are, right? And one more thing that I will say about why I feel like their system has been as successful as it is, is like they are so goddamn good in transition and running off of defensive rebounds. And I think it maybe gets overlooked sometimes. Like the fact that they're so willing to give up threes, you think about threes as being sort of higher value shots in that, you know, to put it in its most simplistic terms, like if you shoot 50% from two point range, that's the same as shooting 33% from three. But what maybe doesn't get taken into account all the time is that if you shoot 33% from three, like that's a lot more missed shots than if you're shooting 50% from two. The Bucks are an incredible defensive rebounding team, but they also happen to be able to just like leak out and get out on the break really effectively, despite the fact that they kind of keep everybody back to defensive rebound. And the fact that they can marry those two things, that they can pull in like 80 plus percent of defensive rebounds and then also destroy teams when they're running off of misses when they're coaxing all these three-point attempts which means they're coaxing a ton of missed shots it's giving them that many more opportunities to get out on the break and it's like a positive feedback loop that i feel like they're taking advantage of as a way to turn defense into offense that i think has been really really effective 100 percent. that is something that dries up a little bit in the playoffs so like that's something i mean you can look at every team that excels in transition they mm-hmm. still excel in transition in the playoffs but it's cut down significantly just because teams value every possession so much more and they do get back in transition 
But all right, we, we just spent like half the podcast <laughs> on the Bucks, and I was supposed to be catching you up on everything yes. going on around the NBA. So let's move on. We're going to head out west to the Rockets, to a team that did come very close to winning a title, as we mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, and knows about the pain of having great years and it fizzling in the playoffs and then it feeling like you had a terrible year. So the Rockets have stayed true to themselves in a way that is unlike any other and in a way that is like Daryl Morey and Mike D'Antoni saying, F it, if we're going down, we're going down our way and staying true to ourselves. And that is going as small as any team has gone in our memory with P.J. Tucker at center. Now, they're not necessarily small across the lineup. Like, they have good size in other spots. But overall, when you've got six foot five P.J. Tucker as your center, you're a small ball team. The Rockets have mostly excelled since doing this. So you had the question in there for me, but I'll ask you, has your opinion about their playoff outlook changed at all? A little bit, yeah. Um, I think just seeing, to me, the big thing is how, is how well they've been able to defend with this look, like I didn't have any doubt that it was going to electrify their offense. Um, I think the extent to which it has unlocked Russ has surprised me because just given how poorly he played to start the season, it would have been tough to foresee him doing this, even though I think they made that move in a lot of respects with him in mind. And it was easy to see how that could free things up for him, you know, uncluttering the floor, basically just going five out. Um, You think about... It's not really five out, I guess. It's more like four out, one in. And in the past, when teams have kind of run that four out, one in system, it's like a big guy in the middle of the floor surrounded by shooters. But, you know, the Rockets have essentially done for Russ what the Bucks did for Giannis in that, you know, they've made the middle of the floor essentially Russ's domain alone and everybody else, their job when Russ has the ball is to space the floor for him. And that's just made it really tough for teams to help at the rim because there are dangerous shooters all around. Russ has never really played in space like that before. Um, Never had an opportunity to really do so in OKC. And while I think he's been a really effective pick-and-roll point guard in the past, it's clear to me that like this is a more effective use of him than using him in the pick-and-roll because all those times, essentially, when you had a big man rolling and Russ would end up pulling up from the free throw line something you know it was a shot that he was pretty effective at hitting at certain points in the past now he's basically just able to get all the way to the rim and it's unlocked him in a way that I couldn't have totally foreseen but to me like the impressive thing is that they have managed to they were eighth in the league in defensive efficiency since the trade deadline until last night when the Knicks the of mighty all teams, Knicks the Knicks, who accumulated like every power forward in the league in the offseason, finally found a perfect use of all those power forwards, which is to overwhelm this small Rockets team with size, pull in 20 offensive rebounds, and manage to beat the Rockets. And I won't say expose them, but at least exploit the Rockets in a way that this is what worries you about that small lineup, right? Is that they are, um, since the trade, they are dead last in defensive rebounding. They are dead last in offensive rebounding rate, and they are dead last in overall rebounding rate. And that's going to be a bit of a concern. But I am a little bit more encouraged about their ability to hang defensively with this small look than I was when they initially made the trade. Covington has been just such a perfect fit there. And you talk about P.J. Tucker being the center, but like Robert Covington has been the rim protector in most of those lineups. He's averaging two and a half blocks per game since becoming a Rocket. (laughs) 
which is totally absurd. And I think, you know, it is important to note, like if they, they are going to switch every ball screen, not even every ball screen, they're just going to switch every screen, period. And the fact that their smaller players are so good at defending bigger guys, and that includes James Harden, allows this system to work in a way that it wouldn't necessarily for another team. And like you mentioned, they're not small across right. the board. That's what allows this to work, right? And that was the same with the Warriors when their death lineup took the league by storm. You look at Draymond Green playing center, and you're like, oh, wow, the Warriors are super small. But they also have, you know, six foot seven Andre Iguodala and six foot seven Clay Thompson and all these guys who can switch across multiple positions. And that is what allows you to go small, essentially, is when you are big at other positions. Exactly. They're small in the matchup against the other team's big man. They're not small overall. The one thing I want to know with the Rockets is that, note, not no. The one thing I want to note with the Rockets is that I think what isn't getting enough attention is that maybe Russ's improvement earlier in the season, before they made the trade, is maybe what opened their eyes to the fact that they could succeed this way. Because everyone's talking about what Russ has done since they moved Capella and the floor has been opened up for him. But not a lot of people are talking about the fact that he was actually starting to do that for like a month, two months before the trade. The turning point seemed to be Russ went 0 for 8 from deep in a Christmas night loss to a very bad Warriors team. And it seemed like the sky was falling in Houston. And oh no, they made like they traded one bad uh, contract of a point guard for another and they got worse in the process and on and on and on. And since then, Russ has averaged only 2.3 three-point attempts per game. And since that Christmas night loss, he's averaging 32 points eight assists or eight rebounds, seven assists and two steals on 52% shooting. He's also randomly back to being like a solid enough free throw shooter. He was a 66% free throw shooter last year and he started the season not great. And it's almost like since he stopped taking threes, his free throw, I don't know if he's got like more energy because he's not yeah. chucking. I don't know what it is, but his free throw shooting's back to at least being semi-dependable. Mm-hmm. Everything about Russ looks like the old Russ. He is once again just about as unstoppable as it gets getting to the rim. You even saw that last night. He wasn't that great against the Knicks, but down the stretch when the Rockets almost came back and stole that win, he had a few plays where he'd catch the ball off a defensive rebound, get going in transition. It seemed like the Knicks had the paint walled off, and then it didn't matter. Russ was still throwing down on them. Like That's the Russ we know and love. That's the Russ that took a wrecking ball to the league in his prime. And I think, like I said, I think... Maybe Daryl Morey and the Rockets seeing that Russ still exist probably made them a little more confident about the deal they made and going small because, you know what I mean? Like, if you know you have that Russ who can rampage to the rim, moving a center out of the way and letting him do that, mm-hmm. I think is a little more plausible than it would have been had Russ been the guy that was jacking eight threes a game and maybe not getting to the rim as often. Yeah, I mean, I think there are probably any number of reasons that they decided to make that deal. I think they really liked Covington. I think they had exhausted their utility for Capella. I think they'd seen in the past that they could succeed by going small with Tucker at center. They'd done it a lot previously. So I said I I felt like it had changed my opinion a little bit. I, I still think that they're going to struggle in certain matchups and and I would still be concerned about like how they're going to how would they how would they beat the Lakers in a series for instance. And I I do think it's going to be really fascinating and I am really grateful for this sort of experiment because I feel like it makes the league as a whole more interesting and I'm curious to see, you know, not just how the Rockets play it but how other teams react and respond to the Rockets and like 
you know, are the Lakers going to go all in on size and continue playing their gigantic, you know, AD Dwight Howard or AD JaVale McGee front court to try and punish the Rockets for their lack of size and just go all in on trying to win the possession battle? Because like the big thing for any team that plays them is going to be trying to solve that math problem. Like the Rockets are going to be getting up 50 plus threes basically every game. They're going to be spreading you out on defense. They're going to be making it difficult for slower players to stay on the floor. But they are also going to give you an advantage and a, and a chance at the other end to rack up like a ton of extra possessions. And sometimes it can work. Like the Knicks last night did exactly that. The, the Rockets hit 23s and still lost because the Knicks won the possession battle so decisively. But there was a game which, again, I didn't watch because I was on vacation, but it was against the Grizzlies, I believe, when the Grizzlies had, I want to say, like 18 more shooting possessions than the Rockets did and still lost by 20 they plus points. They got blown points. out, yeah. So that's going to be the big thing. Is like, do you try and match them by, by going small and just say, you know, we can play small ball better than you? And with Anthony Davis at the five, like that's a big luxury for the Lakers, I think, because he's still super fast and is going to have no problem keeping up with the Rockets, but he is also going to be able to punish them by whether it's pulling in offensive rebounds or scoring in the post, taking advantage of his size in a way that a lot of other team centers cannot. Um, so that's a matchup I'd worry about. I think the Nuggets could be a really fascinating one too because Jokic is as good a post-up player as there is in the league. And as slow a star as there is as well. Yeah, so you know, how is, how is Denver going to scheme around that defensively to keep him on the floor? because he's somebody who can really take advantage of that. And a big part of what, like, what's allowed the Rockets to survive defensively is sending double teams at bigger players, and they've done an excellent job of doubling and recovering and scrambling. And you can't really do that against Jokic. We saw that, like, you know, the Nuggets played the Raptors a couple nights ago. The Raptors didn't have either of their centers. They, and they started tried- Rondé Hollis-Jefferson at center. They tried to go small, which worked against Carl Anthony Towns, but doesn't work against a player like Jokic who as soon as you double him is making instantaneous reads and passes that basically maybe LeBron James can make and nobody else in the league so that's a dangerous proposition against Denver and and for Denver it's going to be a question of whether they can keep him on the floor at the defensive end so that's going to be fascinating I don't know who I would give the edge to in that series I think uh, you talked about this last week on the pod with Eric Walden about the Jazz I think the Jazz would be terrified of this matchup because they do not have a way of taking advantage of the size mismatch, whereas at the defensive end, they have a chance of like Rudy Gobert's effectiveness being significantly blunted, and that's bad, bad news for them. Yeah, the Rockets are Utah's boogeyman. Yeah. Full stop. Uh, Another thing I think is interesting, too, with the way Russ has played the last couple months is you've basically seen an end to those like janky defenses completely designed to stop James Harden. You know, teams aren't trapping James Harden at center court all game anymore because Mm -hmm. Russ is back to being Russ. And I'm sure we'll see a little bit of it down the stretch and even in the playoffs, you know, depending on the kind of game, the kind of series James Harden's going. But I do think that's one thing. You know, everyone was making such a big deal of those defenses um, designed to stop James Harden early in the season. And you really haven't heard much of it. You haven't seen much of those kind of defenses since Russell Westbrook got back to being Russell Westbrook. You've also seen Russell Westbrook kind of take over the offense. Mm -hmm. And... We, we talked about this before the season started. I predicted that that would happen. And I predicted that that would be to the Rockets' detriment. And it hasn't been. And I think that's a really important development. You know, the fact that he can... I won't say hijack, because that has such a negative connotation. But just because 
like if both of those guys are on the floor together at the same time and Harden has the ball, like Westbrook isn't providing that spacing. Whereas Harden, when Westbrook has the ball, is basically chilling like five feet behind the three-point line with a defender stapled to him. And Russ is captaining an offense playing four on four, providing that much more space for him to get to the rim and either, you know, kick the ball out to the corner or just score unimpeded. And it's been super effective. So, you know, I have no doubt about their ability to pile up points. I never did. But I'm, what I'm going to be watching down the stretch is whether their defense can continue to hold up as well as it has. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Last Harden slash Rockets related note is me asking you, when you were honeymooning, did you by any chance happen to catch the feud that bubbled to the surface between the last two MVPs, James Harden and Giannis Antetokounmpo? Yeah, I saw it. I just don't care. Like, it's... This stuff bores me for the most part and i know a lot of people like find it fun and interesting which i get uh i just i just don't really care i think i think it's fascinating because i think this is the first time i can think of where like two players of this magnitude went at each other like this over pure basketball like Mm -hmm. it's one thing for players to like call each other out in the media or joel Embiid and carl any towns take social media shots but this is like two guys basically going at each other about the way they play basketball and i think that's kind of fascinating right in a way that's a good point um you know it states basically back to the, the off season i want to say or anytime james harden would speak like he'd somehow talk about you know how he is should be the mvp or insinuating that Giannis should not have been mvp Giannis, uh then when they were doing the all-star draft i believe he had a choice between james harden trey young and kemba walker i want to say and he went with uh kemba and and he said he was doing it because he wanted someone who would pass the ball we didn't really hear about it for a while, and then Rachel Nichols brought it up to James Harden in a sit-down last week, and Harden says that he averages more assists than Giannis, which is true, and then says that what he does, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but essentially says what he does takes like more basketball skill, and he has to like come up with ways to do things on the court at his size, whereas it's easy to just be seven feet tall and just dunk all the time, as right. Giannis does. And That's why so many other players in the right. league do it. Yeah. Harden's a fool for this one, okay? <laughs> I, I felt like baby there. You know what baby is? The rapper? He starts every song by shouting out his producer, being like, Pooh, you a fool for this one. I kind of <laughs> I, I I kind of felt like that there, because Harden is a fool for this one. But... I know you said you don't care. I think a lot of people do care. And I do think these like superstar beefs mm-hmm. are a part of what makes the NBA a content king. And again, I do think it's a little more fascinating in this respect because it's two superstars not just taking childish jabs at each other about who knows what or right. about being soft or something like that. It's They're going at each other about basketball. And I kind of think that's cool. I think with like the LeBron and Steph thing, even though it wasn't playing out in public you know, or this overtly, I do think there was something similar going on there where LeBron sort of resented the attention and the praise that Steph was getting during that two-year MVP run that he went on. I know Russ resented it. 
Well, yeah. <laughs> Russ has never been shy about his resentment for anybody he plays against. But yeah, I do. I I, I think you you phrased it interestingly in that it is sort of a debate about the way these two guys play basketball. And I think that's fascinating. Like so many people will come down on the side of like what James Harden does is bad for basketball. And certainly, you know, Giannis is seen as more of like a team oriented basketball player. And, you know, the way that he plays does not receive nearly the kind of scrutiny that Harden does. But to me, it really just comes down to like Giannis is a million times better defensively. It was like probably the best defensive player in the league and Harden is at best a neutral defender in most cases a minus defender like if you want to if you want to debate about like the way that they play offense I think there's like an interesting conversation to be had there about which guy is actually more effective at that end of the floor but if we're debating about like who the MVP should be or who is better to me it's as simple as Giannis is the best defensive player in the league that's all it is (laughs) and um, as far as just being a guy who's seven feet tall and dunks all the time Find me one guy who has been as tall as Giannis is, who plays the way that he does and is capable of doing what he does at the offensive end of the floor. Basically nobody. Nobody. Yeah. So. Um, ah, what, he I does, mean, what he does is easy. Just <laughs> just runs up and down and dunks. Um, but anyway, I, I do want to... It seems like there's been a bit of a push in the last few days to kind of elevate LeBron into this MVP discussion. And I know you have been on this train all season about LeBron having and it doesn't seem anymore like it's going to be this one last kick everybody's ass season like you suggested it might be this year but he's been unbelievable and I wonder if you feel like this actually is an MVP race because I kind of feel like it should be open and shut for Giannis no I I agree with you look I picked LeBron to an MVP at the beginning of the season as you just mentioned I've been going on since last summer that I you know I thought this was going to be this FU season from LeBron and if you had shown me what he ended up doing this year and the numbers he had put up, I'd be like, see, told you like, that's what I envisioned. He's going to win MVP and the Lakers are going to win 60 plus games. But I would not have predicted that the bucks were going to win 70 (laughs) and Giannis does what he does. Not because I underestimated Giannis. Like I thought the bucks would probably win like 60 games again and he'd be what he was last year. And he just took it to another level and the bucks took it to another level. So even with LeBron being as good as I envisioned him to be, and maybe even better and the Lakers being maybe even better than me who predicted them to win the championship would be, I still don't think LeBron's in the MVP conversation, not because of anything LeBron's done wrong or anyone else in the league has done wrong, but because how the hell can you think anyone else is in the MVP conversation when you watch what Giannis is doing on both ends of the court, as you mentioned, very capable of winning MVP and Defensive Player of the Year. And maybe you could argue should win both awards. I think 100% he should win both. For a team on pace to win 70 games with I think the best or second best point differential of all time, like the guy's the MVP. Yeah. And and that's it. And that doesn't mean we're not valuing or appreciating what LeBron James is doing. Trust me. I value and appreciate what LeBron James does every moment that I watch him do it. But Giannis Antetokounmpo is the MVP this season. And it would take something catastrophic or miraculous in the last quarter of the season to change that. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, the one thing you can say about LeBron's season is I, I feel like he has established himself as a clear-cut number two in the MVP race. But um, I, I think Giannis has run away with it. What uh, else What else you want to know about while you were gone? I got I to gotta ask you about this Tatum thing. Like, a, a lot of it had started before I left. And, you know, the, the game before the All-Star break against the Clippers was the one that really opened my eyes to the fact that he had made this incredible in-season leap. 
Like before that, he'd had a few really good games and you could maybe chalk it up to a hot streak. But like that Clippers game where he was kind of working Kawhi at both ends of the floor as they pulled out that overtime win, you know, he is... I don't know how to put it other than to say that like he has become the alpha dog on one of the best teams in the league. And I'm starting to think that this is a real thing. So what can you tell me about the games that I missed and the leap that he has taken? Like, where would you rank him right now among the league's best players? Like top, top 15? I, I think, yeah, I think on his best days, he looks like a, you know, back half of the top 10 kind of player. And I think on an average day, he's probably in like the 15 to 20 range. And I think overall, yeah, he's in that top 15 to top 20 range. Like he's threatening for an all NBA team. Like he, mm-hmm. he's that level. Good. He's not one of those like top six or seven guys who I think can be best player on a championship team right now. Right. But based on the leap he's taken, I think I believe more than ever that he could become that guy. Mm-hmm. And I, the thing I think is interesting with him is this is a guy who had a phenomenal rookie season, who went toe to toe with LeBron James in a seven game series as a rookie. Toe to toe is stretching things, I think. Man, he okay. <laughs> like, come on. He went. Pinky toe to big toe with LeBron in a seven-game series and had some pretty damn special moments in that series considering he was a freaking rookie, right? Is that that better? Yes. Um, And then took a step back last year amidst a bunch of turmoil in Boston. Earlier this season, if you remember, I I mentioned about he, he was kind of unlucky early this season when if you looked at his shot profile, he had smartened up from last season and it was just a matter of he was shooting way below his averages at the rim and from, uh, I think, within like three to ten feet. And his three-point shooting wasn't there yet. And then as the season went on, the law of averages started to play out and his better shot selection led to better numbers. What he's doing now, though, is just insane. And I think it's interesting that he's had this leap mid-season because I don't know if I ever remember a guy who was like already solid and like, you know, people expected a lot from, but just hitting another level like this mid-season... This is usually the kind of thing young players discover in the summer. And then when they get to the the season, you know, like Pascal Siakam last year, even this year, you can argue. But what Tatum's done just seemingly out of nowhere in, what, January, February, kind of makes no sense. And you mentioned, like, you know, if there was a game I want to talk about from when you were gone, it's I mentioned it on last week's podcast, and we had Eric Walden from the Salt Lake Tribune on. But what Jason Tatum did to the Jazz in that game in Utah was spectacular. The Celtics were on the second night of a back-to-back after winning in Portland the night before. And then they go to freaking Utah, which we know how tough it is to win there, let alone on a back-to-back. And just absolutely eviscerated the Jazz, and especially down the stretch. There was nothing Utah could do. It didn't matter who they put on him. They had Royce O'Neal on him for times. They doubled him. They mixed up the coverages. They had some zone at some point. And it, like, did not matter. Jason Tatum got to where he wanted to get to, rose up, elevated his jumper was as wet as it's ever been, and he was dropping it over everybody. Um, when they gave him too much attention, he moved the ball at the right time. Like he, he looked like a savvy veteran superstar scorer that this good defensive team could not figure out. And I, I was impressed. And his last 19 games, he's averaging 28.6 points on 50% shooting and 46% from deep. What do you think has been the biggest change for him? Like, do you think it's just a question of him knocking down shots? Because early, I mean, we, we named him as an all-star, right? Like, when we picked our all-stars, and, and then ultimately, obviously, he was named officially as an all-star, just slightly ahead of Jalen Brown. Because for the first couple months of the season, they were basically having, like, equivalent production. And we, I think, you know, pointed to Tatum's 
impact stats as like the tiebreaker there, but like he'd been really, really good at the defensive end of the floor um, and solid, if unspectacular at the offensive end. And then suddenly he's had this offensive explosion. What do you think has like allowed that to happen? I think the biggest thing maybe has been no Kemba Walker. And I don't mean that uh, as a a jab against Kemba. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously the Celtics are better when he's in the lineup, but I think this little stretch they've played without Kemba I think has allowed Jason Tatum to be like the undeniable number one guy on this team offensively, and especially as he separated himself from a guy like Jalen Brown. And I think this has maybe been our first glimpse at, probably since those playoffs two years ago that I was mentioning, of Jason Tatum as like the number one option and the undisputed like go-to guy for this team. And it was kind of like, all right, here you go, man. Sink or swim. And he swam. Right. Uh, and I think, too, what not a lot of people are talking about in this insane offensive stretch for him is how good he is defensively. Yeah. Like, we were talking about Giannis, you know, being the best two-way player in the league, and obviously he's on another level. But what Jason Tatum's doing, like, he's probably been Boston's best player on both ends, at least in this last little stretch. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting point about Kemba being out and, like, the ball essentially being in Jason Tatum's hands a lot more and his ability to create his own shot and recently at least to knock down those shots when he's creating them um, has unlocked a whole lot for him and I guess my next question would be does this change your opinion about the Celtics playoff prospects and specifically I guess right now they are kind of in a battle with the Raptors for that two seed and it looks fairly likely that we will see those two teams finally play each other in the second round of the playoffs after a couple near misses the last few years. And I, I do think it's funny that it's like so different, right? Yeah. There were those years, like the DeRozan-Lowry against the what? The, Isaiah Thomas. Right, and that everyone wanted to see them go toe-to-toe. Yeah. And then it was like, then it was Kawhi and Kyrie. And now it's like these completely different iterations of the teams and we're finally going to see it. Yeah. Um, so who, if assuming both teams are fully healthy, who do you think wins that series? And what what chance do you give the Celtics now of coming out of the East, do you think that they are the biggest challenger to Milwaukee or do you think it's still the Raps? I still think it's the Raps or the Heat only because of like the size that I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. I do think it would just be too much for Boston to overcome in a playoff series. But I, yeah, I, I agree with that, but I actually do think that the Celtics offensively are better equipped to take advantage of the Bucks defense than either of those teams are. And Tatum's, um, Tatum's development, I think, goes hand in hand with that, right? Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, like the type of player who can punish Milwaukee with the pull-up game and in that in-between game, I think Tatum probably can better than anyone else on the Celtics or anyone on the Raptors. I, If you had asked me a month ago, I would have said, if the Raptors are healthy, Boston's not beating them in a seven-game series. I think now, I, th- I still think the Raptors are the better team and a little better built for the playoffs still, but I will say that I now think if Boston gets the two seed and gets home court, I think they can beat the Raptors. And it now seems like they would have the best player in that series too, which is maybe significant. I'm still not ready to go that far. But I think Tatum's made it interesting. Like, he, he's made... So, hold up. Is it You're saying Siakam's better than him, or are you saying Lowry's better I than him? I still think Lowry would be the most okay. impactful player on the court. Yeah, that's that's an argument I can maybe get behind. But I think, but I think, I think, that think Tatum's gotten to a point where, like, I, I would have trouble going with that. Yeah, I think I would put him ahead of Siakam at, at this point, just given what he can do off of the dribble and the, the struggles that we've seen Siakam yeah. have, you know, trying to feel his way through this sort of, like, primary offensive role but given the Raptors injuries and I think we've we saw it you know the last game with Fred Van Vliet out anytime essentially that like one of those point guards is out of the lineup 
and so much of that ball handling and playmaking responsibility falls on Siakam's shoulders. I think he's really struggled with that. And it's been the opposite with Tatum. Like you mentioned, Kemba goes out and he rises to the occasion and thrives and, in fact, like grows his game in a way that like we haven't yet seen Siakam do. So, so who would you take in a Raptors-Celtics series? <sighs> Raptors-Celtics series on neutral territory. <laughs> um, I think it's a seven-gamer. I think it's like pretty close to a coin flip, honestly. Both these teams have been so great this season you know at both ends of the floor like even we talked about what the the Celtics kind of lack up front but like defensively they've been outstanding and they've been better offensively than the Raptors have although like I think the Raptors injuries have had a lot to do with that I think if if it happened right now um, if like magically you could make both of these teams healthy and they could play right now I would give the Celtics just the slightest of edges because I think they have a lot more shot creation than the Raptors have. Um, and I think that can be a big difference maker in a playoff series. I think it might just go with whoever gets home court advantage. And yeah. I think that's what makes this final quarter season for both teams very fascinating because, you know, for the longest time with the Raptors, I thought if they just got finished in the two or three and avoid Milwaukee, they would get to the conference finals. And now I'm not so sure about that. I think they yeah. need the two seed to be Boston. Okay, my last question about this is, let's assume that the first two All-NBA teams for the forward spots, we have Giannis, LeBron, Kawhi, and Anthony Davis. I'm assuming that AD is going to be in there as a forward. I feel like they might put him on as a... Uh, as a center, what, just to balance it Yeah, out. I could see that. But, but he's okay, played, for, he's for played the, sake, the vast majority I know. of his minutes. All right, for the sake of your forward. question, let's imagine he's a forward. Okay, so there are two All-NBA forward spots remaining on the third team. Between Tatum, uh, Jimmy Butler, assuming Butler is listed as a forward, yeah. which I like, I think he's mostly been a guard this season, but he was listed as a forward on the all-star ballot. Uh, same thing with Middleton. So you got Tatum, Butler, Middleton, Siakam, and Brandon Ingram. Two guys for the two last spots. Who are you taking? I'm dropping Ingram. Yeah. Should we put Zion in this mix? Oh, or? my. <laughs> uh, I think I'm dropping Butler, actually. Really? Oh, man. I don't know. This is tough. Yeah. And then, like, Middleton, it's hard to argue against him being All-NBA, given everything we said about him. But then it's also, like... Second best player on a 70-win team. Then you can also argue he's got, like, the smallest load to carry out of these guys. Like, I don't know. Yeah. But then you also have to look at what he's done, like, when Giannis hasn't no, played. No, I know. Uh, yeah, no, I know. I think pretty I think you're probably going to give Middleton a spot. Yeah. So then it's like, who do you pick between Tatum, Butler, and Siakam? I think if you take recency bias, it'd be Tatum. If you take the whole body of work, maybe Siakam. And if you go with, okay, like don't don't be too smart about who's the best player in the three, then you'd go with Butler. So yeah. I, that's a long way of saying I have no idea how the hell I would pick. Right. And there's also a chance that like if Paul George essentially oh God. gets back to the level he was playing, like he, he hasn't been that great this season, but there's certainly a chance that over the last 20 games of the season – he just goes bananas. Like, he's absolutely the capable of that, and he could be in this conversation, too. The NBA is ridiculous with the amount of star talent in it. Also, another reason why they should abolish the centers from all NBA selections. I, I can't disagree with that. Um, all right, so we were just talking about Paul George. Let's move on to the Clippers, because I... While I've been gone, again, I, haven't, I wasn't watching games, but I was keeping up with some NBA podcasts and, and listening to some of the concern trolling that was going on, and it seems like a lot of people are legitimately worried about the Clippers, and... I want to ask you, is there any reason to actually worry about or doubt this team? I No. 
And I didn't even pick them to win the title. And I think any... Okay, let me put it like this. Any concern you should have about this team is a concern you should have had at the beginning of the season. Whether it's the size you mentioned, maybe the, like the lack of depth in the front court. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the potential way that, you know, Kawhi and Paul George resting and or being hurt might affect their seating. Like, those things are legitimate concerns. But we've known about those since the summer, basically. I don't think anything that you've seen in the season should concern you. Because... The fact of the matter is that when they're fully healthy, they have not lost yet with their full roster intact. What is that, like six games? I think it's like nine. They're like nine and zero, <laughs> okay. or 10 and 0. But like the point is they, they have not lost when they have their full yeah. stable of players. Other than like, I guess still LeBron and maybe that's it. I don't know if there's a player I trust more in the playoffs after what we saw last year. And then in his last two playoff runs really than Kawhi Leonard. Mm-hmm. Even in the regular season, like, Kawhi's been completely yeah. insane. And we still know there's another gear he can get to, and he'll get to it when he needs to yeah. in the spring. So, like, they're still incredibly deep. Getting Morris and Jackson between the trade deadline and the biomarker, I don't think those are, like, crazy move-the-needle uh, moves, but, you know, they're a couple players deeper with, like, legit rotation talent. And, no, there's no reason to doubt this team other than if, like me, you already thought that the Lakers could beat them or, you know, the Bucks, the way they look, could beat them. They might lose to one of those two teams because those two teams are also insanely good. But I don't think there's anything like stylistically or even with the chemistry stuff. I know people have talked about, yeah, maybe the chemistry hasn't really completely coalesced yet, but I'm sorry. The same was true of the Raptors last season. People forget that, but like they had a weird regular season last year. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just like don't really have any concerns or doubts about this team. I'm still convinced that they're better than the Lakers and would win a series between those two teams. Maybe less convinced than I was at the very start of the season. But since the Lakers essentially showed early on how good they were going to be, I don't think that my opinion, uh, you know, about those two teams essentially being the best in the West and the Clippers ultimately being the team that I would favor in a series between the two, if only slightly, uh, I don't think that's really changed at all. So, um, yeah. Do you still pick them to win the title? No, I think that's the thing that's changed. But that's because of more of what but, Milwaukee's done as opposed to what the Clippers yes. have done. Yeah, and the fact that like they didn't really address that lack of interior defense at the deadline or on the buyout market. Like I kind of expected them to pull in like a Tristan Thompson. You know what I mean? Even as a guy who could go out there and give you like 20 to 22 minutes of solid interior defense, I would have felt better about their chances of beating Milwaukee. But I think they're their lack of backline defense and like whether they're going to go small with Harrell at the five or whether it's going to be Zubach who's expected to quarterback the back line. I just, I've mentioned this before. I mean, you talked about what the Raptors were able to do to them defensively last year. And I just don't think the Clippers are going to have that same capability, even though they have so much defensive talent on the wing on the interior. It's, it's still a little bit concerning to me. Yeah. I don't so. think they're as defensively balanced as the Raptors were yeah. last year. Um, okay. Let's, Say in the next 10 or 15 minutes and try to get out of here. Let's maybe go a little more rapid fire with some of these topics. Okay. Uh, let's go with the Sixers. You had them listed as one of the teams you wanted to talk about while you were gone. And specifically the impact and fallout of the injuries to Ben Simmons, the back injury that's keeping him out at least a couple of weeks. And it sounds pretty concerning, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Joel Embiid, which I'm now forgetting what he hurt also. Shoulder sprain. Shoulder sprain, that's right. And then um, Josh Richardson got hurt in their last game and left early. I think, did he have a concussion? Yeah, I think you're you're right there. Yeah, concussion. Yeah, I mean, it it seems fairly likely at this point that that 
the Sixers are going to slip to the sixth seed, no? Do you trust your Pacers to catch them? I kind of do, yeah. Like, the Pacers have been playing better lately, and... What happens when Oladipo gets back again? <laughs> Man. I'm not... You know what? That's mean, because I don't think it's... Like, the guy missed, like, 13 months after his knee cap was in I know, shin, and, and but, believe me, believe me, it's been tough. Like, But I, he's been bad. It, he's been bad, and it's been... And he disrupted their... To no fault of his own. Like, no. they, they gotta bring him back. Yeah. Like, he's a star, but... Yeah, I, and, like, their only hope of actually doing damage in the playoffs is to get him back up to speed and... and approximating the player that he was before. Like, if he's not there, yeah, they've had a cute regular season, but it's not going to matter when push comes to shove. And it might not matter anyway, but yeah, it's been rough. And I actually think, like, defensively, he's still been pretty good. It's just, like, offensively, he hasn't quite had the burst. He hasn't been getting to the rim to nearly the same extent, hasn't been getting to the free throw line, and the jumper has looked way, way off. So Just to call myself out here, um, the Pacers have actually already caught the Sixers. So there you go. (laughs) They're tied right now. For fifth, and I believe the Pacers have the tiebreaker. So technically, the Sixers are in sixth right now. Yeah. So and I guess my I should rephrase my question. Not do you trust your Pacers to catch them? Do you, you trust, them trust to your hold, Pacers to hold, to hold them off? off. Yeah. Um, I just think like you're, you're talking about them playing. What, Embiid, I think, is going to be reevaluated in a week. So uh, who knows what that means as far as how long he's going to be out for? Simmons is going to be reevaluated in two weeks, but it sounds like he could be out a lot longer than that. Richardson you know, dealing with a concussion now, who who knows how long that's going to keep him out. And like when he got injured early in the season, even with Simmons and Embiid healthy, that really railroaded the Sixers because they rely on him a lot offensively to handle the ball, to like run the offense in the half court, to run pick and roll. They don't really have anybody else who can do that at a high level. Um, Burks has been pretty nice for them. Like that was a solid addition, but I, he's not making up for what Josh Richardson gives them. And as good as Shake Milton has been, like hitting 14 threes in a row, I, I just, I don't see how they're going to be able to keep up with the Pacers over the next few weeks without those guys. Quick Shake Milton note, Andrew Unterberger, great follow, uh, has done freelance work for the score in the past, tweeted this last night, Shake Milton's first three months of his NBA or, or the season, 56 total points. Shake Milton's last three games, 78 points. Good Lord. I mean, that's a, a nice story for them and also potentially sure. meaningful if and when those guys get back. Uh, having a shooter like that, you know, being part of the rotation and being potentially reliable. I don't know if he's <laughs> going to be reliable or not, but um, that could be a potentially huge development. I just, we don't know whether Simmons is going to come back this season and like what shape he's going to be in when he does. So I guess here's what I'm thinking. Let's assume that everybody does make it back healthy. And they go into the playoffs as this very unpredictable, very dangerous six seed. Is that worse for them? Or is it worse for the three seed that they're going to end up playing? And that's basically looking like Toronto or Boston. It's worse for the three seed. And I, I don't even think that's a question. Yeah. Like, I think... Because for the more, Sixers, it might be good. They stay out of Milwaukee's 100%. bracket. No, I, I was going to say, I think the best thing that could happen for the Sixers might be to finish sixth and kind of start hitting their stride just around and like basically have full health and just starting to click in like April Mm -hmm. and not worry about that four or five. You avoid that grindhouse of a series against Miami in the first round. You avoid Milwaukee to the conference finals. And again, this is assuming they're healthy. I think they would like their chances against either of Boston or Toronto in the first round if they're fully healthy, even though they can't win on the road. (laughs) Um, 
That yeah, home no. road split is yeah, one of the insane. wackiest things that's happened all season. Twenty-eight and two at home, nine and twenty-two on the road. I think it's worse for whoever finishes third between Toronto and Boston. And I, I think agree. Everything we already said on this podcast, even more so between the Raptors and the Celtics, they should fight with everything they have for the two seed because it it's the difference probably between. I mean, I know they still have to play Philly in the second round. It's only one round difference, but. There's a there's a big difference between like going toe to toe with the Sixers in a good second round series as opposed to losing to them despite having home court in the first round. That's, yeah, that's a tough pill for either of those teams to swallow. It is crazy how big a difference there's going to be between finishing third and finishing second. The, the difference between potentially playing Philly or like Brooklyn in the first round, yeah. and then even if you know that three seed does manage to make it through Philly. We just mentioned, like, in a series between Boston and Toronto, we would probably just favor the team that has home court advantage. I, I can't remember a race like this um, for a particular playoff seed having this high stakes. And I think it's like you said, those teams are going to be fighting tooth and nail down the stretch to get that spot. And I think the Celtics have an easier schedule down the stretch. They're healthier right now, although we don't really know what's happening with Kemba and this mysterious knee injury. I think Kemba so. is back this week, is he is not? He? I think so. Oh, I don't know. I hadn't seen, but yeah, there there hasn't been a lot of reporting about about what's going on with this knee. I know um, Bill Simmons has been talking kind of cryptically about how serious it might be. So I don't know about that. The Raptors just like can't seem to catch a break. Like every single night, it seems they have at least two of their top six guys out of the rotation. Right now, it's Marcus Gasol and Fred Van Vliet, and recently Serge Ibaka has picked up an injury. So. They just need to get healthy, um, not even just for the playoffs, but for the stretch run so that they can make their playoff road a lot easier. Well, going to the West, talking about you know teams trying to fight for a spot, it's not for a two or a three seed. It's for the last playoff seed in the conference. So the Grizzlies, they lost a few games in a row. They've now won a couple in a row. They blew the shit out of the Hawks in Atlanta last night. They had a big win over the Lakers on Saturday night. They're still in the eight seed, but they are a little banged up. Brandon Clark's out. Jaron Jackson's out. They have a tough schedule down the stretch. You look at Portland. Uh, Dame is out. CJ McCollum has been great in six games without him, mm-hmm. but they also went two and four during that stretch. Sounds like Lillard's back this week. You as know well. what? I think it might have been Dame I was thinking of that's back and not Kemba because mm-hmm. uh, Dame is back for the Blazers next game. The Spurs are just not a good team, <laughs> and you kind of saw it in the way they lost that home game to Indiana last night. The Suns, I think, are more than five games out. The Kings are like a very weird, unpredictable team that can look like a playoff contender one night and look yeah. like the worst team in the league. The next, which brings us to Zion Williamson's New Orleans Pelicans because they are getting or are healthy at the right time. They're playing well. They have the easiest schedule, I believe, of all these teams. And I think they have the highest ceiling of all these teams. So... Are you just ready to accept that the Pelicans are going to overcome the three games or whatever it is or the four games with a quarter of the season left and get in? I won't say I'm ready to accept that they're going to. I do think they look like the favorite to do so, even though they're, I think, what, three or maybe three and a half games back of the Grizzlies right now. And and most of the projection models have been saying this about the Pelicans. They're three and a half back, three yeah. in the loss column. So most of the projection systems have been saying this about the Pelicans for like weeks now. With Zion coming back, with their schedule taking an easy turn down the stretch, that they were probably going to wind up sneaking into that eighth spot, which is crazy given that, again, they started the season 7-23, and 23, but again, they've gotten healthy. Zion has been as good or maybe even better than advertised, and I think they have two games left against the Grizzlies. 
So that's just going to be like super fun yeah. to watch Zion and to see how this team can coalesce and whether they can make that push and get into the eighth seed. Because three and a half games is a pretty nice cushion, even with 20 games to go. But I think, I think the Pelicans right now, even with that disadvantage, are a slight favorite to get that spot. Agreed. And, um, I guess my next question would be, because a lot of people have been talking about this recently, is will Zion have a legitimate rookie of the year case when all is said and done? Like, let's assume the Pelicans do surpass the Grizzlies and get that final playoff spot. Do you think Zion's going to have a legit case? If they do that, then, then and he's doing what he's doing right now, then maybe, man. Like, yeah, probably. Probably. Yeah. See what he did against LeBron James the other night in that matchup? Like, I did. He, he's pretty special. He's basically playing at an all-star level. Like, if he did this for the whole year and the Pelicans were, say, in a playoff spot, he probably makes the all-star game. Now, it's skewed because he might get voted in, but I mean just in general. Right. Like, he's playing at an all-star level as a 19-year-old who's played in the NBA for, like, a month. I mean, he already looks like one of the most unstoppable <laughs> offensive players in yeah. the league. I think defensively he has a long, long way to go, and that's the thing that's maybe going to hold him back. But... I'm looking at him and thinking that like this could be a top five offensive player within the next couple of seasons. Yeah. Like he, he's just completely unstoppable. Like that combination of speed, bounce, like his second jump, his brute strength, like the combination of all of that stuff in one package is just it's impossible to keep him off of the block. It's impossible to keep him off of the offensive glass. And it's impossible to prevent him from getting like those deep seals early in possessions when he's just sprinting down the floor and like getting low post position and going to work. I don't know what you do with this guy, uh, you know, aside from put him on the free throw line where he's only shooting like 63%. Yeah. Like that's really like the best defense against him right now is just to foul him. All that said, though, I don't want to take away from John Moran because Agreed. what John Moran has done as a rookie point guard mm -hmm. of all things is pretty damn unbelievable. And it's not exactly like he's slowing down. Like, he, like Zion, went toe-to-toe. -to -toe. I mean, I don't know. You don't like saying toe-to-toe when -to -toe we're talking about LeBron. But I'm going to say it anyway. Ja went toe-to-toe -to -toe with LeBron on Saturday night and beat him. You know, just as Zion went toe-to-toe -to -toe and lost to him a few nights later, or the next night, I think. Um, ja Morant is a very worthy rookie of the year. And I think it would take Zion doing what he's doing now and a little bit more mm -hmm. and getting the Pelicans into the playoffs. John Morant right now has the Grizzlies in a playoff spot and almost comfortably so. Yeah, and as somebody who was a big proponent of Embiid should have won rookie of the year, the season that he played, I think 31 <laughs> games, I, I can't hold it against Zion necessarily that, I, I think if he plays every game from here on out, he's going to get to 37 the difference to me is like that year, Embiid was so far and away the best rookie. Yeah. Sorry that John Moran's having a better rookie year than Malcolm Brogdon. Yeah, you know? and, I, and I think that's the big difference, right? So I would say in you know in another year when there wasn't another rookie who was doing something super special the way that Morant has, and taking a team that a lot of people, you know, you and I included, expected to finish fifteenth in the Western Conference, dead last, is instead fighting for a playoff spot. I think. Like that is a significant difference maker yeah. when it comes to, um, you know, taking the whole season into account. And it's not Zion's fault that he wasn't healthy for the start of the season, but the fact is, at the end of the day, you're going to be looking at a guy who's played less than half of the season compared to a guy who has played pretty much the entire thing and has led this upstart team that nobody expected to do anything into playoff positions. So I think it is awesome that these two rookies and seemingly potential transcendent talents are going to duke it out for the 
last playoff spot in the Western Conference. Yeah, and um, we're you know we're gonna be knock on wood that Zion can stay healthy, but like we're gonna be seeing them yeah. duke it out for years and years yeah. to come. So. Hopefully for bigger stakes, which I think they will be. Yeah. Okay. Last thing. Does either of these things pique your interest uh, of things that developed while you were gone? Well, I guess Leon Rose taking over the Knicks technically happened uh, while you got back. But Leon Rose taking over the Knicks and or the Lakers giving J.R. Smith and Deion Waiters a chance. Do you want to, in like 60 seconds or less, discuss either of those things? Or are you so insulted that I'm even asking you about the Knicks, J.R. Smith, and Deion Waiters that you just want to walk out of the studio? I The, the Lakers working out J.R. and Deion, like it just not going to matter strictly like, for the lulls yeah like i neither of those guys i don't think moving the needle in one direction or the other for the lakers so i guess it could be a nice story if one of those guys gets signed and has a chance to contribute even a little bit to a championship contender down the stretch i think waiters right now is probably a significantly better player and i would think would have a better chance of contributing to that team than jr smith would because jr smith looked pretty cooked last season and then I don't think played for like the last two, three months of the year and then hasn't played all of this year. Um, I don't, has he been playing overseas? Uh, that's a good question. Did he play in China? No, that was years ago. I'm yeah, bad. no, I don't think he has. So I, I would say the waiters, like he's the guy that I would choose. Um, and obviously I know you get into that hazy, you know, quote unquote character concerns conversation. And I don't know. I think a lot of the time that stuff can be overstated and oversimplified. And I don't necessarily think that like bringing in D on waiters would do anything to derail the Lakers. I just don't think this is like one way or another is really moving the needle. So that doesn't interest me all that much. Um, also not moving the needle. Leon Rose in the New York. <laughs> like everyone yeah, will see a lot of people are talking about the fact Leon Rose a very, was a very powerful agent. Mm-hmm. At one time he represented LeBron James. Most recently, before he took this job, he's still representing Joel Embiid, Carl Anthony Towns, and Devin Booker, and everyone's saying, well, maybe he can get those guys to come to the Knicks. So the problem is, if you look at those three guys, who were his biggest clients at the time, they're free agents in 2023 or 2025. So if you're counting on Leon Rose's former clients to come in and save the Knicks, you're going to be waiting a while. The Knicks are going to have to build through the draft and build through trade, and we know how that's gone for them. And... Yeah, did it work for Bob Myers going from being an agent to an executive? Sure. Did it work for Rob Palinka? I'd still say the jury's out. What worked for Rob Palinka is that LeBron James wanted to play in LA. Other than that, you know, there's been some very bad examples of agents turned executives. Look at Lon Bobby in Phoenix. It's just not it's not a surefire thing just because Bob Myers and Rob Palinka have had some success with it. I still think if you look at where the Knicks are with the young talent they have, I think they're so far away from anything barring signing like a max level free agent. So like, I, you I mean don't like know. a Fred Van Vliet. <laughs> well, yeah, he'd be a great signing. For he him, would honestly. because they, you know what the Knicks need? They need a point guard. Like they need to yeah, surround RJ Barrett and need I guess Mitchell Robinson. Yes. With a point guard and some shooting. Yeah. And Fred Van Vliet addresses both of those needs. So yeah, sure. Do that. Um, do you have any, yeah. okay. So the only question I have, do you have any faith whatsoever in a Knicks rebuild around R.J. Barrett and Mitchell Robinson? Um, I, I mean, I like R.J. I think he has a chance to be pretty good. He had a great game last night against the Rockets, yeah. by the way. Uh, there are some red flags for sure. Like, the shooting is definitely a concern. And, like, the fact that he's... What's he shooting from the free throw line right now? Uh, R.J.? Yeah. 59%. Yeah, so that's... When you see that, it's always a little bit concerning. 
uh, and that doesn't necessarily bode well for his development as a shooter going forward. 40, 32, 59 shooting split. But I like his skill set as well. I think he's you know a pretty solid passer and playmaker, and like obviously has shown the ability to create his own offense in spots, and you know that's going to get better over time. So I think what he's starting with, you know, outside of the shooting, is encouraging. I do think he has been shoehorned into this role as kind of like a de facto point guard a lot this season, which is why I think you know for that team getting a legitimate point guard in would probably be really good for his growth. And with Robinson, it's just like when you have a guy who profiles as kind of a straight rim runner, dive man type like he does, and you don't have the ball skills and you don't have a post game and you can't stretch the floor with your shooting, you have to be so special defensively to be like a legit cornerstone. Even Gobert, who is a cornerstone for the Jazz and has given that team a really high floor, their ceiling to a certain extent has been capped by the fact that he is kind of limited as an offensive player. So for Mitchell Robinson, like I don't think he was going to get to the point where he was a Gobert-level defender. He's already proven to be a, you know, a very solid rim protector, and as he sort of sands down the edges of his game, the kind of over-exuberant impulses that lead him to you know bite on every pump fake and leave the glass naked sometimes as he goes for shot blocks that he probably shouldn't, and essentially learns to to use his physical skills in a more restrained way at the defensive end like he could be a high-end defensive player but I don't know that that leads to him being like the cornerstone of a contending Knicks team if they don't fill in some of the gaps on that roster with like some high-end free agents as you said yeah I'd, I'd say so they they still have a long way to go you went way longer on the Knicks than I ever imagined you would <laughs> but I guess that's what happens when you've been away from the game for a couple of weeks and yeah. have a lot to get off your chest Mo Harkles also, I want to say, our guy. How can you be so Harkless? <laughs> has been great since the Knicks acquired him. They're outscoring teams with him on the floor. <laughs> I was disappointed that they didn't find a way to reroute him to a third team, yeah, honestly. Like, would the Thunder not have been willing to give up like a second round pick to get Mo Harkles? <laughs> I like that you just call him Mo Harkles. No, I'm saying on, on this podcast, forevermore, he will be known as Mo Harkles and nothing else. But like, they, they could have used him, man. Like, yeah. really, really a few, used him. A, a few teams could have used him. And uh, instead, he's toiling away on this Knicks team. And I don't know. I, I just hope he winds up on a good team next year because that's a, a player type that I feel like a lot of teams around the league could use. All right. You got it all off your chest? Yeah, I think so. It's we, good to be back. We, yeah, it is. It's good to have you back. We will be back probably next week with something closer to our usual 45 minutes to an hour. Apologies for going 85 minutes. But <laughs> I do think we had a lot to, uh, to fill our boy Wolf on. You know what? I appreciate it, man. Thank you for your patience. Yeah, of course. Always. For Joe Wolfon, who is back, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock. Pound the Rock.